Hello, and welcome back to Glossy Trend Watch Streetwear Edition. I'm your host, Danny Parisi, a fashion reporter here at Glossy. For episode three, I'm joined by Josh Luber, the co-founder and CEO of StockX. We invited Josh into the studio to discuss the changing landscape of streetwear resale and how he hopes to use StockX to elevate resale and create a safe, accessible marketplace for both buyers and sellers. Episode three of Glossy Trend Watch Streetwear Edition starts right now. I'm here with Josh Luber. Josh is the co-founder and CEO of StockX. Hi, Josh. How's it going? Pretty amazing. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Or thanks for being here. You cut that. No, no, no. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, So for the listeners, uh, if you've ever bought a pair of sneakers for resale, not for the original retail price, if you've ever searched to see the price history for a pair of sneakers to see if you can possibly afford it, you might be familiar with StockX. It's one of the premier, I think, resale marketplaces for sneakers. But you don't just sell sneakers, is that right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I've, um, I've made that mistake before. No, that's okay. Look, we started with sneakers, and, and sneakers is the largest part of our business, and yep. we're probably the largest sneaker marketplace in the world. But um, the second largest category is streetwear, mm-hmm. uh, and majority of that is Supreme. Uh, but we also sell watches and handbags, and slowly moving into other categories as well. Right. So I was going to say, I imagine sneakers is probably the biggest kind yep. of core of your of your business. Um, how important do you think sneakers are to the overall overall streetwear world? In my opinion, it seems like it's kind of like the core. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, important is a subjective word, but um, the the streetwear world as we know it today, and and uh, such a big part of that is a, is a function of that um, kids, young men care a whole lot more about their appearance and everything they mm-hmm. wear um, today versus, you know, when I was in, in high school or even, or even five, ten years ago. And sneakers were the gateway drug to that, right? Sneakers were the first thing that I think people, um, this demographic really cared about and wanted to, to flex, wanted to have something that was different that other people didn't have. And then it so, so, slowly grew up from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just anecdotally, I, I think that when I was in high school not too long ago, um, sneakers 100% were the gateway, I think, for a lot of people, and especially young men. And that's something I've heard from other people in, in streetwear and in fashion in general, is that men's fashion is booming right now. Not just in streetwear, but everywhere. But a part of that, I think, is driven by streetwear. Yeah, and, and what you had was this progression where it was sneakers and then streetwear, and then now you're slowly moving into fashion as those two worlds blend, but also as that demographic and as that that kid grows up and becomes older and now has a little bit more disposable income and maybe wants something a little bit different. And now something different isn't necessarily supreme, but it's maybe something from Louis Vuitton or it's something from Dior, right? Where you're now still in that same idea of, I I basically just want to wear something that other people don't have, Mm -hmm. right? And and have some sort of flex around that. Um, You're just sort of looking for other opportunities to do that. Right. And I think that is part of the reason why streetwear and luxury have had such a successful crossover is because for a lot of people, streetwear is so similar to luxury um, in general, just with a more accessible price point, I think, for people in high school. At least it was. Or or, or not, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the resale market has shown that um, this demographic is willing to pay $1,200 for a hoodie if it 
that hoodie has a right. Supreme Box logo on it, right? And so the fact that there's that much money being spent on that, uh, you know, the luxury brands have always used that model. Um, their difference is they just started at that price point, right? It was about, you know, it was about scarcity and it was about quality and, and, and luxury. Um, and uh, jumping from where we were 10, 15 years ago, that an 18-year-old kid might spend, you know, $1,200 on any sort of, top to wear a shirt or a hoodie or anything else was crazy. But if you take a progression of like, oh, I, I bought, I was buying Jordans and Yeezys and Supreme and, and all of a sudden like, you know, spending, you know, uh, whatever, you know, $800 for a, a, a cause Dior shirt, like, isn't that crazy anymore? Right. Um, that's a good point you bring up. When did you get your start kind of in the sneaker world or, you know, like when did you first become conscious of it on a personal level? And then when did you start on a business level? Yeah. Look, on a personal level, I have the exact same story as every other sneakerhead. You know, I'm 40 mm. years old. I'm almost 41. I grew up playing basketball and Jordan played. Yeah. I always wanted Air Jordans. My mom would never buy me Air Jordans. And since I got some money, I bought Air Jordans. Like we all have the exact same story. And right. I mean, even when I look back, you know, the first pair of Jordans I bought was about six months after I had my first real job after I graduated college. Um, so, you know, from a consumer standpoint, I've been collecting sneakers since like middle school, right? Since since 1990, uh, 1990 probably somewhere in, in that area. Um in the business side, what's interesting is that, you know, I've started and run three other startups before StockX. Um, you know, I'm a, a startup guy, but none of them had anything to do with sneakers or streetwear, almost intentionally so, almost like intentionally separating business and pleasure in my life mm-hmm. out of um, out of not wanting to, to create a business that was just an excuse to play with sneakers. And perhaps it's irony or perhaps it's, it's um, not that the most successful of all those startups was when I finally brought together my personal passion with business right yeah that seems like maybe not a coincidence that that's been the most successful one yeah um so in the time that you've been in the sneaker world in the streetwear world how do you think the the consumer has changed who is it the same person 10 years ago i mean obviously sneakers are much more mainstream now in a way that they weren't 10 years ago i mean people wore sneakers but the sneaker culture i feel like wasn't as mainstream yeah um if you look at sneakers there's been three really big sort of moments in time um 1985 your first air jordans um 1999 2000 internet ebay so now what was a very local underground um uh you know group culture um now became an online underground but at least you could buy things online and you could sell online and then 2011 2012 that's Instagram, social media. Like that was right after Facebook bought Instagram, and Instagram was going through its own hockey stick growth. And now sneakers went from something that was kind of underground to being a lot more mainstream, and a lot more people becoming aware of it. And what we had during that period of time, you had this hyper growth around sneakers because you had more people coming into it, and it was just people that either uh, that were interested that now had access. You know, Instagram. All sneakerheads ever wanted to do is show off the shoes that they have and see what other people are wearing. And Instagram allowed everybody to do that at scale globally. And all these new people started coming into it. The, brands, the opportunities to flex were unlike anything people had seen before. Like, exactly, right? Like, like exactly. And then the brands got on that. Brands started using social media to um, uh, to promote. And what I think is, is happening, and I'd like to say we did this intentionally, but not necessarily, is StockX is kind of becoming that fourth... 
uh, moment because now it's about creating access for everybody. At the highest level, StockX is just about access, right? And so you can get products that you can't get elsewhere because you either can't walk into a store and get them or you're not willing to camp out outside of a store or you don't know somebody that works there or you don't have a computer program or you don't know how to authenticate or you don't know what a fair market value is. Like they're all just different levels of access and StockX has now made it easy. So the, your question is what's happened is that customer has gone from super niche underground local to literally everybody. Everybody, if they want, can can now go buy a pair of Yeezys. You might pay more than you would at retail, but the experience is the same. You go to StockX and you buy a pair of Yeezys, it's as simple as buying, you know, whatever, a pair of shoes on, on footlocker.com. Right. Um, yeah, it still comes in the same box. It's still the same quality product. Uh, just the the way that you're, the, the platform you're getting it from has changed. Yeah. Um, so um, an aspect of StockX that I, I didn't get to mention earlier is the the price history uh, aspect of it. it. Seems like a big part of of what StockX does. Um, do you have a general idea of the arc of sneaker prices over the past like fifteen years or so? Uh, what's phenomenal um, is. We spent a lot of time. So the the company before StockX was this company that we created called Campless, and mm-hmm. Campless was the a sneaker price guy. Right? We were. This is 2011, 2012, 2013. Scraping eBay data to to build a price guide, and we were we were a data company, and we had this blog that was kind of like Freakonomics for sneakers. And one of the posts that we did in this sort of deep insight into sneaker pricing over time, and looking at the price of any one shoe over time, but in the aggregate. And the resale price of sneakers over time, the curve looks identical to a Nike swoosh, <laughs> which is either a conspiracy at the highest level or just some really cool coincidental shit, wouldn't, right? I like, wouldn't put it past uh, Nike to <laughs> right, engineer right. that somehow. But if you think about it, what happens is before a shoe is released, it starts a little bit high. Once it's released, right, supply floods the market, so mm-hmm. it drops down a little bit. And then slowly over time, it just slowly increases. Now, the the how steep that curve is, how steep that end of the swoosh is, Changes depending on the shoe and 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 what's mm-hmm. going on, but fundamentally, what's really happening is the number of brand new pairs uh, in the market uh, it decreases because people wear them because people they find their way into people's hands that want to own them, and so this whole thing is just supply and demand. So as supply decreases, demand it basically stays the same, and price slowly increases over time. So it looks just like a Nike swoosh. That's any individual shoe sort of in the aggregate. But, you know, if at a whole, you know, resale pricing has always sort of been, I don't, I don't see a whole lot of difference, you know, as a right. whole, but like that's what like one shoe does or every shoe does, which is just really mm-hmm. cool stuff. Yeah. So there's not really a cohesive narrative of like sneakers are more expensive now. Sneakers are less expensive now. Not any more than, you know, the price of all goods or inflation or, or whatever. Right. I, you know, I think that, I can speak for me personally. I used to have a, I used to have a, a sort of barrier at three hundred dollars, um, that felt like a really expensive shoe on the resale market. Mm-hmm. You know, um, ten years ago, back when Jordans were one hundred and twenty-five or one hundred and fifty, and three hundred felt like a lot. And um, I do feel that there's a whole that that number has changed a whole lot more, um, has grown a lot more. Where like five hundred now seems like that what 300 was before but maybe that's inflation maybe that's just time right. going on but you know up until very recently i had never paid more than like 400 dollars for a pair of shoes and now i kind of don't really think twice about it can you predict when a sneaker is going to be hot on the resale market or a dud you personally i mean like do you 
are there things you can look at to tell? Um, so I don't think that I can predict any better or worse than anyone else who's in it and living it because of StockX. Like, I don't think StockX gives me – because it's really not predictive data. There's there's mm-hmm. nothing that we're really using um, – because what you would have to do is – first of all, you'd have to know supply. Um, and the brands never release supply. At a market level, so the market figures out supply because – you start to understand that, oh, like, so Foot Locker has a, a release calendar on its website, and it's a map of the United States. And it's got a flag for every store that's going to get a shoe. If a shoe's coming out, and there's only three flags in the whole country, it's like New York, LA, and Chicago, one store each, like, that's pretty limited. Yeah. If you can't see the country because there's so many flags in every Foot Locker, like, there's a lot of supply. So, like, you know, people inherently figure out supply, but, like, we don't really do, like, predictive analytics. And everything for us really happens once the shoe is available or very shortly, and, and then it's about market pricing. So... All that said, I think most of us have been in there long enough. Inherently, we know the things that resell. You know, you, you can kind of feel it ahead of time. Yeah. Um, so let's get into something that you and I have talked about before, which is the relationship between the primary and secondary market. I mean, this is something that I, I didn't really think about it before we started talking about it. Um, but you've told me uh, a lot about the crossover between the two. Um, so they don't give you a lot of information, it seems like. But... How much of a relationship do you have with the brands, Nike, Adidas, and all that? Well, I, it's important to recognize that the brands and is they're a collection of, of tens of thousands of people, right? Right. And, um, and so we have relationships with many people at many different places in, in all of the brands. Um, you, we've only done one big public thing with either of the two big sneaker brands, right, back in January of 17 when... Um, when we did the the LeBron IPO, where where Nike released LeBron's first retro with us, which was a really big deal. Um, for a long time, we were um, selling data to the brands and and you know consulting for them and teaching them about the secondary markets um, with different people, whether it was the data people or. Um, but um, you know, for us, the real goal is to get into a cadence where we start to do regular releases with the brands. Like that's the goal, right? And um, and today we haven't. We're not really there yet uh, in, in terms of anything public that's out there. But, you know, we just finished up um, this IPO. And I don't know if you if you saw over the last two days with um, uh, with Ben Baller and we created this slide. Now, it's not with Nike or Adidas. It's just a, a, a kind of a, a slide by this small company called Stray. But the method by how we release that, doing this as a true IPO, using a blind Dutch auction in order to release it, like that's our hypothesis as the way that brands should be releasing product. And those are the conversations that we have with the brands at sometimes at the highest level. And it's a pretty big change from the way things exist now. So we don't expect and not naive to think that it, it'll happen quickly or overnight, but you know, at some point soon, you know, maybe you'll see the next Yeezy released on StockX as a Dutch right. auction. Well, we, we can only hope. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it seems like they they have to pay attention to not just StockX but the resale market in general. Uh, it, it's so big, I can't imagine that they would ignore it. But it seems like they do kind of have a policy of not really officially acknowledging yeah, the resale I, market. I, I and this is my words, not theirs. My I think the policy, particularly Nike, is sort of like a willful blindness policy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is 34 years dating back to 1985 and the first Jordans. Everything that Nike and Jordan brand does creates a secondary market. They clearly benefit from it. They're clearly very, you know, smart and tactical about how they, you know, use their supply and demand levers in order to to build hype and marketing around it. But, you know, if you would ever ask them, and Nike's PR, you know, 
people would tell you, oh, we have nothing to do with that. That's not us. It's, right. And I totally understand why, and that's fine, and, and that is perhaps how um, it should be and, and how it's been for a long time. But a big reason, because is up until very recently, there were no really legitimate players within the secondary market. It was this very sort of wild west, wild west underground thing that you know had a lot of bad connotations around it. But just like ticketing evolved past that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, leagues and teams were arresting ticket scalpers. They're trying to shut down ticketing websites. Today, StubHub is the official resale marketplace of Major League Baseball, and not only that, but then there's there's teams that release products, release tickets directly through StubHub, like the retail season tickets. So, you know, ticketing went through the same iteration where eventually you stop trying to fight against a secondary market and realize, well, it's not going anywhere. We might as well figure out the right way to work together. Right. Do you feel that there's any resistance still from sneaker brands or do they all seem very on board, even if with the the willful blindness kind of thing? Um, My the, the overall sentiment from the majority of the people we speak to at the brands is we absolutely recognize that secondary market is not going away. We absolutely recognize we have to figure out how the right way is to work with them. But we are in no hurry to make any missteps, and we will take this slow and figure out the, the right way to do that. And that's fine, and I understand why that's the, the way it is. Right. Um, I want us to go back to the idea of sneaker culture. Um, how do you think resale has played a role in the proliferation of sneaker culture, streetwear culture becoming a mainstream force in fashion? Resale is about access, right? Um, you know, resale gets a, a dirty word or has become a dirty word. And, and um, there's a lot of, particularly when, when, you know, it was a very back alley type of sketchy thing. Um, and it makes sense, particularly when, you know the the resale was um you know what was there was so there was so much lack of transparency what was going on that sellers could really take advantage of lack of information and really gouge people right be like oh you know buy by my Yeezy 350 I'm the only one that has it it's a thousand dollars and you you're a buyer you don't know what the market looks like but there's you know there's hundred other people over there they're all selling that but you just can't see that because there's no transparent market that's what StockX did and in the beginning those people that used to be able to to gouge customers those resellers were the ones who were most upset because we pulled all the margin out of that because we added transparency and gave power equal power to the buyer and seller and so um, and over time the prices end up going back up because more people come into it but what it did was and, and to your point to your question is it just creates a, a fair level playing field that everyone's happy to engage in because there's transparency and you can see everything that's going on and that's about access and it brings more people in because you have less people that are are scared and like people would net like the most of our customers stay on StockX are people who would never in a million years have tried to wade through like eBay to buy a pair of Jordans five years ago or, or try to buy a pair of shoes off of Twitter or something, right? But, you know, everything around StockX of why it's easy and, and safe to do so, it grows the whole market. Right. Uh, and safety, I think, is another big thing, too, because like you said, wading through eBay takes a certain amount of determination and a certain amount of willpower uh, and Resale platforms make it easier, but they also make it safer because if you if you shop on eBay, you know you never really know what you're going to get. Right? Yeah. You know, StockX, we physically authenticate every single product that's sold. You know, after the transaction happens, the seller sends it to us. 
we authenticate, make sure it's real, make sure it's the right size, the right condition. It is what it, it's supposed to be, and we send it to the buyer. And there's a couple other platforms that do that, and, and some consi- consignment shops do that. But most of the traditional marketplaces, most notably eBay, don't do that. And so you're on your own. And sure, you can go file a PayPal claim, but that assumes you even can tell whether it's real or not. And some of the fakes are, are so good that most of the people probably don't even know that they have a fake if you know they, they bought it through eBay. Right. Um, we did some some statistical research early on at StockX. And we figured out that at least 60% of all Yeezys on eBay were fake. And that is purely statistically by looking at what is the average price on StockX, you know, what are they being sold on, on eBay, you know, percentage deviation away from, um, you know, from the meme. And that means, by the way, that the number is much higher because if you're smart and you're selling a fake, you should try to be selling it for like five bucks below whatever the 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 median is, right? Don't go right. sell it for for two hundred dollars less than market price. Like that's a pretty obvious, right? Mm-hmm. Sell it for. So you know that's just uh, out, astounding that like that. But that's that's what what happens when you have a completely unregulated platform and you have a situation where you can make so much money. You sell a pair of Yeezys for a thousand dollars. You know, and a fake pair you probably buy for thirty bucks, right? And then they're so good, it's so hard to tell. Like, of course, that's what's going to happen. So something that you just said reminded me of this. I feel like uh, yet another reason why streetwear and luxury are so compatible is because they have a lot of the same challenges and fakes and counterfeits and authenticity and authenticating and the relationship between primary and secondary markets are all things that luxury has gone through over like a hundred years mm-hmm. and that sneakers are now going through now. Um, do you think that they, they meaning sneakers are moving through all those growing pains, those processes quicker, easier, differently than luxury has? That's interesting. Um, you know, I can really only really speak to on the secondary market you know um you know at retail the sneaker brands have been able to use the secondary market even before it was uh legitimized and and as large as it is um to to drive sellouts and to drive you know that sort of you know mass awareness there's a little bit of difference in you know when you think about luxury fashion there's not a um there's not a wide range at this is sort of like outside looking in, like there's not a wide range of, um, of like consumer that you're, you're going with. Like if you're, if you're, you know, Dior, right? Like most of your products are targeted to a pretty specific and kind of the same consumer, right? It might be different male or female, might be slated, but like Nike makes sneakers for everybody, like everybody, right? It doesn't matter who you are or what you do. Like Nike's got a shoe for you. And I think that's just inherently a little bit just different of how they think about their customers and, and what, what they're trying to do. And, and the part that we talk about here, the, the resale market, the, the super expensive you know, things that resell and sell out, is only a really small piece of Nike's overall business. Same thing for Adidas. And, you know, it's, it's really, it drives a lot of the heat and the marketing and the PR, and obviously it drives the secondary market in our business, but their overall business, it's only a really small piece. Right. Um, to your point about Nike making sneakers for everyone, I have noticed that I feel like the the big hype sneaker market seems mostly driven by men's sneakers. Um, do you think that's true? And do you think that might change? Yeah, it's definitely true. Um, you know, on StockX, well, there's very few um, 
non-men sizes that that have any real substantial value on the secondary market. Every now and then there's a pair here and there, but it's usually it's some derivation off of a men's shoe. Like, you know, when Nike did the um, uh, the Jordan 1 satin shattered backboards, they essentially just took what was a, a men's resale shoe and they made it satin and then made it in, in women's sizes. But every guy who had, you know, any size foot less lower than a whatever a 10 is so you can wear a, a women's um you know a, a women's 11 and a half was in there trying to buy them and right. that's what jacked up the price it wasn't a women's shoe wasn't a woman's shoe wasn't a, you know so yeah it is almost all that and i think a lot of that is just the function of um it's just supply and demand and so you have so much more so uh demand from men than women in this area of the hyped resellable shoe. Not that there isn't some demand from women, but it's just so much lower. You know, StockX, I think our, our sneaker business is maybe 4% women. It's probably less wow. than that. Yeah. Sneakers, I think, uh, by most people's standards, are expensive, uh, especially the kind of hype uh, resellable sneakers mm-hmm. that we're talking about. Um, yet at the same time, a lot of it is tied up in youth culture, um, sports and art and music and stuff like that. Uh, is there any sort of contradiction or, or paradox in basing products off of youth culture, marketing them towards youths? I mean, obviously people of all ages buy sneakers, but I feel like sneakers definitely have a, a youth um, appeal to them, but then selling them for a lot of money. Well, I mean, Nike doesn't necessarily sell them for a lot of money. I mean, True. sure, $180 or $200 is a lot of money for a pair of shoes, but it's not you know, $2,000 that, that they sell for it, and that's on the secondary market, right? Off-White Jordan 1 is a great example, right? Retailed for one ninety and and, you know, resells for $2,000. Um, Nike doesn't sell that for $2,000. They might be able to if they wanted to, but they don't. Um, but even so, when you look at um, what you have, and this is why the resale culture has been great over the past, whatever, 20 years, that's usually how those kids can afford shoes, Right. You know, is to to be able to, to get three pairs and sell two to be able to pay for the third and, and own that one. Right. Like, um, you know, if you're 16 years old, where's your income coming from? Right. Right. You're, you're going to school. But if you can flip a couple pairs of shoes, it can help fund that collection. We had a name for them, actually, which was like mini resellers. Um, you know, a lot of the resellers in the sneaker world are some version of a, of a small business and a professional business. But you had these mini resellers that were essentially funding their personal collections by being able to flip a few. They don't need to go out and, and get thousands of pairs every week. But if they can just get one or two and flip them, then they can go and fund their collection and buy, you know, one or two pairs a month if they want to be able to have them. And then you're a 16 year old kid and you can have a $2,000 pair of shoes because you essentially, you know, funded it yourself and doing that, which is a lot different than luxury that just starts at that price point, right? Like one of the, the really interesting brands, I think, is Fear of God, where, um, you know, and and I know Jerry, and I lo- and by the way, I, I love the new shoe, but you have a $700 polo shirt, and that brand, I feel, is either like, it's appealed to either like legitimately like rock stars and or like young kids and like... I can't afford a $700 polo. So like, I don't know who, and you can't fund it by flipping it because they don't flip because it's already $700. Right. So that's what I think is a little bit of a dichotomy. And by the way, like those brands are are fine. They're, there's some market for them and pay them. But I, I, I think that's an interesting thing. It's different than sneakers where you were able to, to fund your own collection. Right. And you're right that most 
of the really even the most hyped like resellable sneaker usually doesn't retail for more than three hundred. Mm-hmm. Like Yeezys are like three fifty or, or three hundred, right? Yeah, I mean, look, um, you know, Jerry Shoe actually, which was I think three ninety five. Um, everyone was like, "Wow, that's so expensive," and it is. But every one of them was flipping for at least two times retail. Right. So, you know, if you can get two of them, right, if you're a kid and you're willing to sleep outside of a store or whatever, if you, you sell one, you can pay for the other and, right. and, and you're good. And something that's interesting is that they're so scarce that I feel like um, if if 200 people or I don't know, we don't have to use exact figures. If, if some people can get it for the retail price, but the vast majority of other people are getting it for like $1,000, then it's kind of like the actual price is $1,000. Right. I mean, that's our hypothesis at StockX, right, is fundamentally it's a broken or at least antiquated system that if this shoe costs 200 or retails for 200 hours, but it's worth a thousand hours, like what kind of broken system just continues to sell this thing for 200 hours? Now, there's a lot of reasons why Nike wouldn't want to sell it for a thousand hours, but creating equitable distribution is hard and relying on mass chaos to do it is bad relying on people writing sneaker bots is bad relying on camps outs like oh, these are all like antiquated old methods and there hasn't really been a better method to create equitable distribution and that's literally what we're trying to do with like our with our IPOs by having like a dutch auction inherently is a an ultra fair method because everyone is going to pay either what they bid or less to be able to get it and so that's that's kind of what we think happens in the the future of this right um, so we're just about out of time. Before we go, Josh, tell me and tell the listeners what sneakers are you wearing right now. Um, so this is I'm wearing a pair. It's it's um, Reebok. It's called Remember the Alamo. It's a Reebok Kamikaze. It was mm-hmm. a collaboration between Packer Shoes uh, and Reebok in 2013 around the All Star Game, and uh, and I happen to be wearing them because I was just on. Um, I was just filmed on. Uh, the complex show called Full Size Run. Mm-hmm. And one of the hosts of that show sold me these shoes four years ago. Wow. Can I see them? Mm. They're beautiful. Thanks, Josh, man. thanks for coming on the show. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of Glossy Trend Watch. A special thanks to Gianna Cavadona, the producer of this podcast. We'll be back next Friday with episode four, featuring Fila's VP of Heritage and Trend, Louis Cologne, as he discusses finding a balance between being true to your brand heritage and staying on trend with the streetwear culture that embraces it. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe and review the Glossy Podcast, and follow us on social media at Glossy Co. to keep up with the latest news in fashion and beauty. We'll talk to you next week.